<laughs> that's a good one, wasn't it? Unless you're from the South, you wouldn't understand. That's a good one. All right. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. These guys will be glad to give you one. A few moments. We're going to have a little challenge for you. I won't tell you what that is. We'll wait till we get there. I know you're excited. I can tell by your attentive. So excited. Are you awake? All right. Are you a Tigers fan? Hey, come on. We won a game. We're excited. Even basketball starts next week. <coughs> All right. Take your hand out. We don't have as many inserts this week because I know you memorized the ones I gave you last week. Apparently not. But we're going to begin to continue. If you'll notice the top of your handout, our series is about what? If you don't have, you don't have a handout, you can look up the screen, but you should have one. What is truth? We've spent several weeks looking at this subject. We will continue to over the next few weeks. What is truth? Why is this so important? Well, there are a number of reasons, and we'll get into that, especially in the next couple of weeks as we begin to wind this down. Why is this so important? Randy, we're tired of talking about this. The reason it's so important, there are many, many people that stand up and say, this is the truth. What's happening in our nation, as a matter of fact, I believe, uh, the yes, addressed partially in uh, yesterday's paper, Mary, we're showing that. We got something this week from uh, Hank Hanegraaff in the mail, somebody that I respect and listen to a lot, the National Worldwide Ministry. But the whole, in our culture in America, that we live in a, in, a, in a culture now that is based on relative truth, not absolute truth. So for us as believers, we've got to decide if what we believe is true or is it just our choice of belief system. You've heard me say many times, everybody has a belief system. Everybody believes something. Now, you're probably thinking and maybe even saying to someone that I, I believe the Bible. I don't have to keep hearing this. Well, there's a reason why it's important, a couple of reasons why this is so important. One is so it will reinforce that what you believe is the truth, that it's not just an option. Jesus is not just a choice. He is the choice. He is the only option by which a man or woman can be redeemed, by which a man or woman can know God. And if that is true, that drives you to point number two, which we'll talk about in a little weeks. So what I want to do today is continue as we're looking at the Bible as truth. Because the reason this is so important is that we have a tangible, physical, hands-on, even if you've got your smartphone. I'm not smart enough to have a smartphone, but even with a dumb phone, that you can get to do certain things. You can have a Bible in your hand all the time, and if it is truth, then you can open it at any point in time, even when you're supposed to be working, although I don't recommend that. But it, you can open it, read it, or listen to it, and understand that it is the God who created the universe, the God who sent his son to die for you, who is God, your redeemer, your savior, your God speaking to you, not an option, not another religious tome to open and read, but it is literally, we will see next week, the living words of your God saying to you, hey, pay attention. I mean, I'm fascinated at thinking about and watching and listening to people that, I mean, there are shows now, there was some show uh, I saw briefly on cable the other day about this lady that I think is supposed to medium, and how fascinated are even John Edwards over the last few years, how people are so fascinated, I want to talk to someone who's already passed away, somebody that normally it's a loved one, I'd like to hear from Cousin Billy, or I'd like to hear from, I'd like to talk to my mom again. We'd all like to do that. 
But in the person of Jesus Christ, you can. You can talk to someone who has died, who's risen from the dead, who's ascended into heaven, and he's left you something saying, I am here. I'm speaking. I'm talking to you. When I read John, I'm, and, and the, the words are in red, that's how I know. It's Jesus speaking to me. When he says, I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the door. I am the bread. I can read those things, and I can understand that Jesus is speaking to Randy, and he wants Randy to do something, and he wants Randy to stop doing these things and focus on this. So, and whether it's that, as we'll see in a moment, throughout the Bible, you keep coming back to the fact, when I open this book, and I read and I study in context historically, the context of the book, the context of all of Scripture, and the context of all of history. It is the God who is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent, who is my Father, who is my Savior, saying, this a man for life, Randy. This what I need. Now, it doesn't answer every single little question, but it gives you principles by which to live your life and apply the principles of what you're facing in the moment. So on your handout, if you'll notice 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not risen, your faith is futile. This is where we were last week. You are still in your sins, exclamation point. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. There's no hope for them or that you'll ever see them again. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitied. And that is so true. And as I said last week, that passage goes on to say, but now Christ is risen. So last week we dealt with the fact the Bible is, number one, historically reliable. We're not going to go over these things again, just so we'll catch up. The Bible is historically reliable. We look at the archaeological evidence, and I gave you a bunch of that to take home, and that's just a sampling. As I said, I could give you book after book. There are evidence after evidence that man, who in many cases anti-Christ mindset, has discovered things that verify the Bible as true. Jericho being one of the prime examples. We've already done it. We're not doing that again. And then we looked at the manuscript evidence. Have you, again, I gave you that handout last week that if you take the evidence for what we have, the manuscripts of the, of the New Testament in particular and of the Old Testament, and you compare them with what we have of other books and other things, that the evidence is overwhelming of how much we have of the Bible and the fact that the Bible that we have is true. So we dealt with the archaeological evidence and we dealt with the manuscript evidence last week. The fact the Bible is historically reliable. Even if you say you don't want to believe it, you can't deny the truth. Scott and I were talking about this this morning and I've talked to several people that the same thing about truth. We dealt with gravity several weeks ago and there are many different ways you can show that example. It doesn't matter whether I believe something. Something is proven to be absolutely true. I can deny it if I want to. Doesn't change the fact that it's true. That pole is there whether I see it or not, correct? If I go over and bang my head against it, it will hurt. Why? Because it's there. Now, I can deny, I can say there's no pole there, but when I walk over and bang my head against it, I'll realize there is a pole there. And whether I believe it or not, it's there. I have a right to choose to believe it. it's not there, but it doesn't change the fact that it is. So when I reject absolute truth, what scripture, the Bible's been proven to be true, on and on as we look at these things, I can reject absolute truth. But it is not an intelligent or intellectual decision. It is a moral decision. I, do, I refuse to accept creation, therefore I accept evolution. We dealt with that. I refuse to accept that, but I will accept this. You have the right to do that. But it doesn't change the fact the evidence overwhelmingly points to the fact that we were created. The universe was created. The evidence, not, not the Bible, even though the Bible backs that up. We've talked about that. The evidence points to the fact it was a creator, a designer, a maker. I can reject that if I choose to do so. What I'm saying is, bottom line, when I do that, don't confuse me with the truth. 
I want to believe what I want to believe. Again, you have the right to do that. But it doesn't change the fact that it's not true. Truth is true. So today, number two on your handout, we've looked at the fact the Bible is historically reliable. Number two, we've already talked about this, so it's going to hit the highlights here. The Bible is scientifically reliable. Just mentioned creation evidence. We dealt with that. That's the ultimate apologetic. I've used this on a number of occasions. I've used it with my older brother. I tried to use it with my younger brother, but he's dumber and dirt and he wouldn't pay attention. But my older brother, who considers he, my older brother is, for those of us who grew up in the 50s, 60s, my brother was Woodstock, still is. He has a receding hairline. He looks just, if he was standing next to me, you would think it was me. Good looking guy. But he has a receding hairline, but it has a ponytail down, which is nothing wrong with that. That's the way he chooses. That's fine. That's, that's my brother. He went to Woodstock. Jimi Hendrix was his god. When Jimi Hendrix died, my brother locked himself in his room and wore a black armband and smoked dope for six weeks. That's my brother. I'm not making that up. It was my brother. And I never did. I mean, it was just, that's who he is. That's who he is to this day. And we said and we discussed, and he said, I know you believe in the Bible. I know you believe in creation. I don't believe in all that. And I said, okay, Ricky, this is the ultimate apologetic. That you're sharing your faith. I said, Ricky, uh, he's a captive audience. We're going to visit my aunt in Henderson. That's about an hour and a half driving in my car. He didn't even... I said, tell me where you came from. I said, tell me where you came from. He said, well, I know you believe the Bible. I said, I didn't ask you that. I asked you, where did you come from? Not me. I know where I came from. Richard and Virginia Lockley, and so did you. Got the same DNA. Why do I believe this? You don't. We'll get to that later. I, on the way back, you still got to ride home. I said, where did you come from? He said, and, we, and we discussed it. And we have a good relationship. We can talk. Hour and a half ride, he said, I believe in evolution. Talk about that. So by the time we got to Henderson, he didn't believe in evolution anymore. But you know what his answer was? I don't believe in evolution, but I'm not, I'm not going to believe in creation. And I said, that's not an intelligent decision. He goes, I, I don't talk about it anymore. I said, I understand. Because you ain't right. This is my brother. So I took it a little further with him. I said, if you want to be dumb, be dumb. I don't care. But understand this. The evidence swears overwhelmingly. Somebody made you. You're too smart to be an accident. Well, in your case, maybe you were an accident. I said, you're too smart to be an accident. Where'd you come from? That's ultimate apologetic. And we looked at all the evidence for that. Even Time and Newsweek, those two bastions of Christian truth, over the last 10 or 15 years have published several articles, both in Time and specifically in Time, but in Time and Newsweek, pointing out all the evidence for a designer. Not saying they agree with creation, but that the evidence points to the fact there's some designer, intelligent design, that, that movement. They were addressing that. They don't want to say it's the God of the Bible, and they will never do that. But what they're saying is the evidence what? And even Richard Dawkins, the quintessential atheist, aliens. That's better than the Bible? Aliens? So the ultimate apologetic, the creation evidence, points to what the Bible says. And I mentioned this, we're not going to go back over all of the, the, the details. But if you take the, the biblical account of Genesis 1 and 2, and you go, it's not, the Bible's not written to be a scientific book. When it speaks on the subject, it's always accurate. So when you go back and you examine the evidence, and then you wrote, look at what, what Moses wrote in Genesis 1 and 2, scientifically it fits the evidence. How did Moses know? Because the person who created Moses wasn't, couldn't have been that smart. We talked about the verse in Isaiah where it's God's circle of the earth, the sphere that was written. 700 years before Columbus born, excuse me, 2100 years before Columbus was 700 years before. How did Isaiah know that? Because we all believe what? They believe what? Was flat. So let's just a couple of examples. The creation evidence. Second, the human race evidence. When you read the Bible, you read the stories in the Bible from Adam and Eve and all the way through, they're consistent with everything the anthropologic's ever been discovered about man. The Bible fits. Again, how did they know that? We'll talk more about that later. I'll read you a quote from a guy named Walter Bradley, theologian, very, very sharp guy. Quote, one of the most remarkable features of the Genesis 1 account, despite the fact it was written almost 4,000 years ago, is its accord with natural history that's been written in the past 200 years. Genesis 1-1 begins by claiming that the universe has not eternally existed, but was created by God at a point in time. In other words, 
Well, let me finish his quote, continuing. From the time of the Greeks, it has been fashionable to believe that the universe has eternally existed. Until the 20th century, the idea of an eternal universe was supported by the scientific theories of, of conservation of energy and conservation of mass, which stated that neither energy nor mass could be created or destroyed. The cosmology that has become almost universally accepted by cosmologists in the last third of the 20th century <coughs> clearly describes our universe at one, as one that began, just as Genesis 1-1 indicates, quote, how does the Bible begin? Genesis 1 1. Beginning God made. That word in Hebrew is in the beginning God made out of nothing. Nothing existed, and boom, we hear the term Big Bang. Boom, it was here. God told Moses that's how it happened. How did Mo Until the 20th century, what did people believe? We just read it. That the universe, what? Had always been here. The Bible says at a specific point in time, God actually created time. There was no such thing as time. God created. And at a point in time, boom, he began, he created the universe. So scientifically, and all the, for the human race and the creation evidence all points to the fact that the Bible is reliable. I could give you a lot of other stuff that bore you to accept this fact. But bore you to read it and a lot of that junk I gave you the last two, based on the fact of the ground. All right. Or we could all go to Disney today and hang out with everybody else that goes there. All right. So. The point is, it should encourage you, excite you about God and your Bible. That when you read them, when you follow him, the truth, not another religious option. All right, today, number three, we're really going to focus on this today. The Bible is prophetically reliable. Prophetically reliable. There are a lot of different things we can do. I want to do one thing. Once you take the little handout you got today, you see the Bible says, the Bible is prophetically true. Everybody see that? All right, here's your challenge for the day. I want you to find the book of Nahum. If you're from the south, it's Nahum. If you're from anywhere else, it's Nahum. I want you to find that book. You'll probably have to do like I did, turn to the table of contents. It is a real book in your Bible. It is one of the minor prophets. We're going to start there. You got your little handout. So you'd like a Bible drill when you're a kid. Who's already found Nahum? Nobody? Peter found it because he typed it in his Anybody found it yet? All right, we got one, one person. Nahum. Who found it without having to look it up? All right, impressed. You know why they're called minor prophets? It's just something you can impress you. You have major prophets and minor prophets. You know why they're called that? Anybody know? That's the size of the book. That's deep in it. Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah. They're major prophets because they're long books. How come they didn't call them long prophets and short? I don't know. The research is bothering. All right, got your hand out? The Bible is prophetically true. We're not going to go over all this. We're just going to hit the highlights. The destruction of Nineveh. Nineveh, if you remember the story of Jonah, John, uh, we're not going to go over all the stories. So Nineveh, is in, if you want to read about Nineveh, you can go read the book of Jonah. Look at Nahum chapter 1, verse 8. Everybody has, you found Nahum now? All right, if you're from the south, you found what? Nahum. It's got 18 syllables. All right, Nahum 1, 8. But with an overflowing flood, God will make an utter end of its place, and darkness will pursue his enemies. Verse 10. While tangled like thorns and while drunken like drunkards, they shall be devoured like stub stubble, fully dried. Look over Nahum chapter 3, verse 13. 313. Surely your people in your midst are women. The gates of your land are wide open for your enemies. Fire shall devour the bars of your gates. This was all prophesied in 730 C and it's 612 BC. 100 years later, exactly what was written, Nahum happened to Nineveh. How did Nahum know that? God told him. Look at Micah. So just back up one book. Make it easy on you. Turn to Micah chapter 5, verse 2. You've heard this a million times. By the way, this again, just a sampling. Micah 5, 2. But you, Bethlehem, a though you are little among the thousands of Judah, 
Out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting, the eternal one, in other words. Micah 5.2. How did Micah know this? This was prophesied 710 years, Jesus Christ. If you read Luke chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, we're not going to do that today. We read it every Christmas. Luke chapter 2, verses 4 through 7 says this is fulfilled. Bethlehem, the Messiah was born. How did Micah know that? 700 years before Jesus. Turn to Zechariah chapter 9 as over just a little bit toward the end of the New Old Testament, Zechariah 9. That's one of the major prophets over six foot. Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a coat, the foal of a donkey. You've heard this many, many times at Easter. It's known as the triumphal entry celebrated on Palm Sunday. Zechariah 9.9, prophesied by Zechariah 520 years before Luke chapter 19. You could read about Jesus riding into Jerusalem. Fulfilling prophecy. How did Zechariah know that 500 plus years for Jesus Christ? Without going into, we're not going to read the others. If you look at D there on your handout, if you read Psalm 22, 14 through 18, you read John 19, 23 through 24, the psalmist is describing crucifixion and details of it before it was ever discovered as a method of torture. Shows dehydration, shows thirst, on and on. The disjoining of the bones, the piercing of the hands and feet, casting of the lot, the clothes like he did with Jesus. 1,000 years B.C. describes crucifixion. 1,000. Now notice under D number four, this is important. 1947, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, dated about 200 B.C. They refuted the claims of the modern critics. The Psalms were recorded after Christ was crucified. You know why critics of the Psalms were recorded after Christ was crucified? Because they were so right on to what happened that there's no way that 1,000 would happen. Daniel describes day when you to the dead. You could go on and on. Why do I do this? Why is boring stuff important? Because it tells you that your Bible is true. I could give you many others. Uh, you can read about Ezekiel 28, you read about Sidon. Ezekiel 26, you can read about Tyre. Jesus, all the prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus being vir- uh, the Messiah being virgin born, uh, being sold for 30 pieces of silver, uh, no broken bones, death of criminals, buried in a new tomb, his resurrection, rejection by all those things prophesied in the Old Testament all happened. The life is Christ. You may have heard this illustration. It's really, um, it's been around forever, but it's very apropos. I want to share it with you. Move on. There are hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah that Jesus fulfilled. In 1969, a man named Dr. Peter Stoner wrote a book called Science Speaks, 1969. He was chairman of the Department of Mathematics and Astronomy at Pasadena City College, and he became the chairman of the Science Division at Westmont College. In other words, a smart dude. He was a mathematician. That alone says he had to be smart. So he, Dr. Stoner, in his book, calculated the probability that any one man could fulfill eight prophecies Eight of these prophets, like Jesus, just eight of them, that one person could fulfill eight of those. The probability of that was one in 10 17th power. In other words, uh, a one with 17 zeros. I didn't do well in math, but I'm thinking a lot. Thank you. That's a lot. One to the 17th power. So he, he gave an illustration, and you may have heard this, but I really like the illustration, of how you could understand this probability or improbability of one man fulfilling eight of these prophecies. He said, cover the entire state of Texas with silver dollars, two feet deep. Texas is a pretty big state. Cover the entire state, silver dollars, two feet deep. You can tell it was done in the 60s because he's silver dollars. All right. The total number of silver dollars to do that would be 10 to the 17th power. Then he says you take one silver dollar, you put a market, and you put it back. Stir up all the silver dollars. One has a red X on it. And the chance of finding that one silver dollar would be a chance one man fulfilling eight of prophecy. But eight, but hundred. Written again, 1,000, 500, 700 years ever came on the Micah, Isaiah, the Psalmist, Kariah, on and on. 
So when you read prophets, these prophets, and you read, study history, again, if you don't believe the Bible, that's fine. Read history. Then you go back and you read these things that were written in history. You study history. You see this Jesus of Nazareth fulfilling these. What does it say to you? Whether I like the Bible or not, these guys knew something. How did they all know? The Bible is prophetically reliable. Incredible. Number four, the Bible is uniquely reliable. And this may be my favorite part. Uniquely reliable. This next point is extremely important. The Bible is internally consistent. And what do I mean by that? Internally consistent. It was written by 40 different people over a 1,600-year period of time, written on three continents in three separate languages on hundreds of subjects. They didn't have the Internet. They didn't have smartphones. They didn't have radio. They didn't have telegraph. They didn't have the printing press. Written over 1,600 years on three continents in three languages on hundreds of subjects without contradiction and with one consistent theme, the redemption of mankind. Now, what does that say? Somebody had... Moses never met Paul. Moses never met Nahum, much less been able to pronounce it. He didn't meet Zechariah. He didn't meet Zephaniah. He didn't meet Micah. David didn't know them. We're talking about 1,600 years, 40 different individuals. So I will see in the next couple of weeks the Bible, as Paul told Timothy, under the inspiration of the Spirit, all Scripture is furring primarily the Old Testament. All Scripture given by God, God breathed, and it's profitable word for us, profitable, internally consistent. Why is this important? One of the things I love about the Bible, it doesn't sugarcoat and try to hide the truth. For example, when you read the story of David, God chose man king, a man after God's own heart, hero of Israel. But then you read about his life with women. How did he do with women? He was a miserable failure. God didn't hide that, does he? You see the truth. He writes history. It's laid out for you. Abraham, the father of the faith. Islam, you know who the father of their religion is? Abraham. You know who the father of Jews is? Abraham. The father of Christianity is? Abraham. The father of the three great religions in the world, Abraham, was a liar. He lied about his wife, said it was his sister, on at least two occasions, right? He wasn't perfect, was he? But God said, Abraham, did you leave her of the Chaldee to go to a land that I will show you? The Bible says Abraham to God. And boom, God declared him righteous. Same way you were with God. Not perfect, but redeemed. And God used him. Peter. Was Peter perfect? No, he denied Jesus, actually cursed his name the very night they needed him the most. The Bible doesn't hide, it tells you the truth. Yet, Jesus, hey, Peter, after the resurrection, appears, after the resurrection, I need you to feed sheep, my sheep, tend to sheep. And he went and did it. He led the church. He was the leader of the church, Jerusalem. Not perfect, but used by God. The Bible tells you the truth. It doesn't lie. Who's the only person you see in the Bible who's perfect? Wonder why? The Bible says he was perfect. And you see some others who live exemplary lives. Daniel is not recorded for us. He failed in the life of Daniel. But he was human. What does the Bible say about every human? They're faithful. They're not perfect. It's internally consistent. The truth. And it's true. It's historically true. When you read the books of the Old Testament, when we were looking at the manuscripts, we saw this, written within 100 to 200 years of the life of Christ. The authors of the four Gospels were directly acquainted with the events they depict and the people that were part of these events. We have reliable reproductions of the original manuscripts written by the author. They do not report logical impossibility. The Gospels do not show evidence of such systematic bias as to be unbelievable. In other words, I just tell you the truth. Writers outside the New Testament, outside the New Testament, corroborate the essential points of the Gospel report. In other words, when you read the New Testament, what are you reading? Historical truth. Tell you what happened. Simple example. Simple example. When Jesus, the culture in which Christ lived on earth 2,000 years ago, in the Jewish mindset and really in culture, what was their opinion of women? Women were considered property. Your wife wasn't allowed to speak in public and sit with synagogue. You owned your wife. You could put her away. The Jews figured it out. You could put her away, and it was always her fault. Property. The Bible just tells the truth. Witness of what Jews always wanted to verify. So Jesus rose dead, who first people, women. And then when Paul writes letters, scribing church, how does he describe women? He says, in the church there is neither male nor 
Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. We are one. The Bible is just accurate. Now, why is this important? One last thing, and then we'll finish. The bottom of your handout. When you read the New Testament, the writers of the New Testament mention and verify the author's book of the Old Testament as being God's word. Again, historically accurate. True. You take other scientific books, excuse me, other books that are considered sacred texts, they're historical inaccuracies, they're assigned things that are in there wrong. You can't find that in the Bible. 1,600 years. 40 different guys, three different kinds, consistent, true. Look at John 17, 17. I, I absolutely, when we did the upper room discourse, I think you got a sense of how much I love that part of the Bible. This is Jesus last night on earth. He's got these 11 guys and leaving, terrified, don't let go, takes a side. All those great things saw in the upper room. And in John 17, he prayed for them. The Bible's there. He's also praying for us, all who will believe, based on the word. I want you to notice the bottom of your, if I see John 7, 7, from the lips of Savior Christ, as he praying for you, Sanctify them by your truth. Jesus praying the Father. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. You see that? Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. What does it sanctify? Jesus saves us. We're just, we die and go to heaven. In the interim, are being sanctified. means set apart for what God chose you. If you're born again, for being sanctified. Set apart unto God. Be holy. Separate unto him. All the different places that we go and all the place, relationships we are in, things that we do, places we find ourselves. It's one overarching principle in my life and in yours. I am Christian. I believe God's word true. I believe Jesus of the world is my Savior. I am set apart to him. Now, how is by this book? This is God's word, the Bible true. So when I go to it and I read it, God is teaching me something. God is wanting to point out. God is wanting me to grow in my faith so that I will be defied. It is done by his word. That is the reason. That you see me constantly harping the fact, if all you get is on Sunday morning, as good as it is, and I know it's, it's not enough. You know, realize I listen to probably sermons and take notes, sometimes more than that, because I need to learn. The day you stop learning, the day you die. To grow. You don't grow, you go backwards. Say, I'm all right, stagnate. Water that stagnates. God's not happy. God doesn't want stagnant. Alive. Revelation, what does God want from you? flowing, immersed word. I know nobody listens to AM radio, but I'm telling you, there is such a thing as AM radio. AM 640 is a great tool. Cost you to sit there and learn. I li this morning I learned something. Just listen to Robbie Zachariah. I learned something. Just listening. Word of God. Studying. There are so many tools out there. Incredibly opportunity. But you know what? I decide that it's you will be sanctified by the word of God. Part what God wants. You won't always like here when you're paying attention. God may say something to you. He didn't put it in here. Excuse me, he did put it. He didn't put it in here for decide whether we like it or not. Be sanctified. For example, pray. God tells me to love my enemy. None of us like, do you pray for people who hate you? Yeah, you pray for, pray, God, I've, I've felt that way. I hope I don't pray that way, but I've felt that way. God said, pray good things. I don't like that. And I understand, grow, learn. I understand when Jesus was hanging across, with those enemies put him there. Now, let's see, the beat his vital organs were exposed, drove spikes, wrists were torturing him to death. Probably weren't his friend. And what did Jesus Forgive the Father, they don't even know. He's perfect, I'm not. My goal. When it comes to the Bible, the Bible's true. It's not. If it's true, then I surrender. If it's not, what you'll discover is that if, you, if you're honest, let's pray. Bow your heads. Lord, we just pause before you because you are our God. We pause before you because you've given us your word. We pause before you because your word is truth. So, Father, I pray for all of us who are Christian, beginning with Randy Lockley, that I would surrender to the word of God.
Not just open it sometimes, read it, but believe it, trust it, follow it, learn it, submit my life to it, because that is the manual for living. Given it to us, you gave it to Moses, you gave it, you gave it to David, you gave it to Nahum, you gave it to Zechariah, Malachi, Micah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, on and on. The gospel, the epistle, the historical books, prophetic books. Lord, you've given them all to us so that we can be sanctified. I pray that for, as individuals and as a church, that we would be set apart by your word. Because it is truth, we would be set apart to be what you call us to be the church is Christ. So Lord, I pray that for us. And Lord, today, if there's somebody seated here who is not a believer, who has not given their life to Christ, it would be his or her moment to say, I do believe Jesus, you are the Savior. I do believe the Bible. I do believe you died my sin. That you alone can save me. Forgive me. Save me. I want to be a follower. I pray that would be, this would be that moment for that person. And we pray in Jesus.